verse 18. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. And may God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Our quotation today is from the Reverend Zachary Crofton, from that wonderful uh, essay on repentance out of the Puritan sermon series. Listen to the Reverend Crofton. Recumbency of a soul upon a Christ received, entrusting him entirely with and committing to him the care of soul and salvation, staying the soul upon him, leaning upon the beloved, rolling the soul upon him, resting with whole weight upon him as faithful, able, loving. And this is truly fiducia or trust. This is truly credere in Christum, to believe in or upon Christ, more than credere Christum et Christo, that is to believe a Christ that he is, and to believe Christ or his word It is a phrase, profane writers, unusual as the thing itself. Salvation by faith was unknown. To this belong those expressions of the eyes being toward God, looking to him, even as the serpent was lifted up, to be looked upon with expectation of healing virtue, so Christ to be looked unto by the soul with a longing expectation and confident dependence. Wow. <laughs> kind of gives you chills, doesn't it? Such great teachers of old that we have for our opportunity and advantage. So we have looked already, believe it or not, we have looked at nine verbs of motion toward Christ in describing fiducia or trust upon him. We talked about believing into or unto or upon him. As Mr. Crofton just stated, we talked about receiving, following, coming to him. Uh, We we talked about drawing near to him from Hebrews 10.22. We looked at going to the Lord in Hosea and in Luke. We looked at returning to the Lord or turning to the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 1.9 and others. We talked about abiding in Christ from John 15. And we talked about resting and leaning and rolling upon Christ from several places in the Old and New Testament. All of those verbs have have this one thing in common, right? And that is that they all terminate their activity upon Christ. It is being united to him in these ways. And hasn't God been indeed incredibly gracious to us weak sinners by granting to us all of these verbs, all of this, these different ways of saying it. God has not been slack toward us, has he? He's been full. He's been fatherly 
like we would condescend to our children and speak in a language they might understand with those sweet tones and and with those smacking lips, you know, as that, as Calvin would say, as the nurse lisps toward a child. So God has changed his speech, as it were, and provided such great terms of faith that we might draw near and be united to Christ in these things. Well, I have three more. Three more today. I don't know if we'll get to all of them or not. The first one is very large. It's a, it's a great big concept from the scripture. Mr. Crofton mentions it at the end of the quotation, and it is looking unto the Lord. Okay, looking unto him. And as we heard before, let me, let me start out this, this, uh, this concept by saying that, you know, we are not like God in that we don't see everything all at once. When we uh, speak of looking at someone or something, what we speak of is turning away from other things and putting our gaze upon the one thing. Remember that day when Peter and James and John, they were going to the temple in Acts chapter 3 for the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, I don't believe they were going there to sacrifice. I think they understood that was passed away. But I think what they were doing is going there because the fishing would be good. Right? There were believers there in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they could speak to them about Messiah. And remember they're on the way in and there's this, there's this man sitting there by the beautiful gate. Solomon's gate, right? And here he sits and he's been lame in his feet for 40 years. And he's over 40 years old. Probably all of his life is what's being communicated there by Dr. Luke. That he's been lame his whole life. And so here they come into the temple. And the man is looking at Peter. But then Peter says to him, look at us. Remember that? Look at us. And what does that mean there? Because there are all kinds of people coming into the temple. Well, the man turns his eyes toward Peter, and Luke is very careful to tell us with some sort of expectation. He had a hope. He looked to Peter with a hope, because Peter had said, look at us. And so he looked toward him, and Luke says that he hoped to receive alms from Peter. And that's when Peter utters that famous phrase, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have, give I unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And what does he do? He doesn't just rise and walk. He uses every bit of that new capacity that he's been given. And so jumping and leaping and praising God, he follows Peter and James and John into the temple and they worship together. And the whole crowd rushes in and Peter preaches yet another sermon pertaining to the healing of the lame man where he gives all glory to Christ. What's important about that for our time this morning is what Peter said, what the man did, and the way that he did it. Peter said, look on us. And when Peter said that, the man 
fixed his gaze on Peter. But not just so that the, the, uh, the photons of light bounced off of the lame man's retinas in his eyeballs. Not just that. But it was a looking with expectation and hope to where he could, in a sense, not see anything else. And so he had fixed his sight a bit too low. We understand that. He was hoping to receive alms. What he got instead was indeed Jesus Christ. The Bible speaks very solidly on this same thing with regard to saving faith. We are told over and again in these very terms that this is what saving faith is like. So let's take a look at several passages of scripture together as we, as we mine this treasure. Turn with me first of all to Isaiah chapter 45. Most of us, when we think of Isaiah chapter 45, we think of those very puzzling passages at the beginning. Not not that puzzling, really, but maybe the first time we ever read them as baby Christians, we thought, ooh, that's a hard saying, right? Where God says, I form the light, I create evil, and so on, right? Well, what, what the Lord is doing there is he's setting himself up. He's presenting himself to us as the only God. The only God and sovereign over everything. Calamity comes, it comes at his hand. Good comes, it comes from him. We're not divorcing the creation from God. We're not identifying them like pantheists do. But we're also not divorcing them, right? Like transcendentalists do. uh, Like deists do. Right? God says, I'm separate from my creation, but I'm here. I'm active. I'm in it. I'm the only God. And so that's how Isaiah 45 begins. But then it goes on, to, and we'll pick up the reading in verse 20. Notice what the Lord says here. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together. Remember, we've already talked about coming and drawing near, haven't we? Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together. Ye that are escaped of the nations, they have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me. A just God and a Savior. There is no God beside me. Look unto me. And be ye saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself the word is gone out of my mouth and in righteousness and shall not return that unto me. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. What does the Lord say there? Look unto me. Turn away. Turn away from the graven images and other uh, pretended sources of supply. 
Turn away from those who would tell you that they can save you when they cannot. Turn away from human effort, from self-righteousness, from uh, the machinations of men in their might. Turn away from all of that, the Lord says, and look unto me. And the word there, look, it's just the standard word for look, but it is pregnant with meaning, isn't it? It means that we look to him for everything. We look to him for our eternal salvation, for the, for, the, um, for the eternal disposition of our souls. And we do so in hope and in confidence. It's not just a turning of the gaze. But the eyes become there the true windows of the soul. So that all of our desire goes toward him as well. Look unto me. And be saved all the ends of the earth. Is how the Lord puts it there. We could turn back a few pages to Isaiah chapter 31 as well. Notice this is look away and look to. Like we heard turn away and turn to. To God from idols. Right? Now we're going to say look away and look to. Woe to them, 31.1, woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. You see what the prophet is doing there. He's turning us away from every earthly or temporal prop and stay you remember king jehoshaphat children you remember him there was a time when jehoshaphat uh, after he came to his throne was attacked or about to be attacked by the mobites do you remember that and what did jehoshaphat do well he called a fast Right? There, there have been stories written about that. Some, I think, a little, with a little bit of, of exaggeration, would say that, jo, that, that you know, to remind us of his fast, that they would say, well, at one time he was fat, fat Jehoshaphat, and then he became flat, flat Jehoshaphat. Right? Stories are told to children like that. Well, let's stick to the scriptures. And what does it say about Jehoshaphat? Notice Second Chronicles chapter 20, and we'll begin our reading in verse 6. Verse 5, And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, art, thou, art not thou God in heaven? And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Art not thou our God who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gave it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever. And they dwelt therein and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil come upon us, as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. And now, behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, 
whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Beloved, there is a place in which every person in the world must come where they recognize that they don't need to fear Moab, Ammon, and Edom. That the fear that they have is the guilt that rests upon them for their sins against heaven itself, against God. And they must turn away from every earthly prop and stay And like Jehoshaphat, they must look to the Lord. Look unto me and be ye saved. All ends of the earth. Well, we can ask ourselves that question, can't we? This is a question we can ask ourselves. Have we seen the enemy looming, perhaps even a little bit closer than the horizon, maybe even in our own breast? Have we seen that enemy and have we looked unto the Lord? For deliverance. The Psalms also speak roundly about this. We'll not take the time to look up every instance, but there are many references. You Psalm singers know this, where we are, uh, where we are encouraged to, or even as an indicative statement, this is what we do. We look unto the Lord. Let's just look at one of them in Psalm one hundred twenty-three. A song of degrees. Remember those songs of degrees, what they are? These are the pilgrim psalms. The people of God have left their, their family farms, their homes, their cities, and their towns. And they're making that long trek, some of them, even from Dan in the north, coming south to uh, Jerusalem. And on their way, they sing psalms of degrees. And so here we hear in Psalm 123, Unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until he have mercy upon us have mercy upon us O lord have mercy upon us for we are exceedingly filled with contempt our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud what does the psalmist say to us here what are we encouraged to do what is how is saving faith described here It is described here as this constant dependence upon the Lord like a slave, whether male or female, looks to his master, whether male or female. They don't eat. They don't sleep. They don't have any benefit unless it comes from the hand of their master. They have 
no advantage. They are without property. The only thing they have in the whole world to trade with is their labor. That's it. And so they look. But notice they look with a confidence and hope and dependence. They look toward those hands and we, we must think of the best of master and slave relation in this passage because it is used by analogy to compare God to his people. So looking at that best of this kind of analogy, notice they look with expectation to the hand of their master or their mistress for that supply and for that favor and for that goodness that keeps them from destitution and contempt. Beloved, do you look to God like that? This is how we must be looking to God, our Heavenly Father, not just our Master, but our Father. We might even add to this analogy, adding the doctrine of adoption to it. And we might say that we might look to God toward His hands as the hands of a Father with great love and tenderness, dispensing to His children all that they need, all lesser gifts and all greater gifts. As we heard our Lord Jesus Christ teach us, and as we use very often from this pulpit, if you are his sons, shall he not give the Holy Spirit to them who ask? And if the Holy Spirit, or we might turn to Romans chapter 8, if he's given us his son, well then how? How is it that he would deny to us any other good thing? Look unto me, And be saved all ye ends of the earth. This is again one of those verbs of motion uniting us to the Lord. We might also if you're taking notes. You might also want to write down Psalm 2515. Psalm 121 verse 1. And Psalm 141 and verse 8. In these three psalms, we see looking unto the Lord, waiting upon him, serving him in hope and expectation. If we turn to the prophets, we've already turned to, the, to one of the major prophets, Isaiah. We turn to the minor prophet, that parallel to Isaiah, that contemporary of Isaiah. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Bible scholars? Micah. Micah chapter 7. So please turn with me to Micah chapter 7. And I challenge you like that from time to time so that, you know, we, we become better acquainted with the scriptures themselves. Micah and Isaiah are contemporaries one of another. As a matter of fact, there are a couple of passages in Micah and Isaiah that uh, some folks don't know if it was original with Micah or original with Isaiah because they are verbatim one from another. In Micah chapter 7 and verse 7, Therefore... I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. For my God will hear me. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring 
me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. This is what it means, beloved, to look to the Lord. In Zechariah chapter 12, and we're hastening ahead because we want to come to the New Testament and show a few things from several passages there. In Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 9, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad-Rimon in the valley of Megiddo, And the land shall mourn, every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, and the family of Shimei apart, and their wives apart, and all the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. This is a wondrous statement of the New Testament. When God would pour out his spirit, the spirit of grace and supplication. And what happens when God pours out his spirit like that? They will look upon him. They will look upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They will look upon, Jehovah says here, me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourneth for an only son. One of those great Trinitarian passages of scripture. And notice they will mourn not only as the house of Israel, but this is true faith in Christ in that it will descend into individual hearts and they will look and they will mourn and they will bring forth the fruits of faith. Oh, beloved, this verb looking here It is so very important as we see it used all over the scripture as one of those verbs uniting us to Christ. It is to look with this confident expectation of the mercy of God in Christ. And we look to him, not with doubting, not as that double-minded man of James chapter 1, but with a confidence In his mercy. Again, not the strength of our looking, not whether or not we look with 2020 or not, but it is him upon whom we gaze. That is where the confidence and the strength comes from. Turning to the New Testament, then, first we'll begin in Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 27, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So 
Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him, or look unto him, shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. This is not just a confident expectation in his return, but a confident expectation in his saving strength. Hebrews 9.28 We turn to Hebrews chapter 12 for a moment. And verse 2, we'll begin obviously in verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We walk by faith, right? We run in faith. We've looked at many verbs like that. Here now we are looking to him who is the author and finisher of our faith. And so we draw those concepts into parallel here in Hebrews chapter 12. It is not just looking to him as an example, beloved, that the apostle is requiring of us here. It is looking to him for salvation. Looking to him who is the author and finisher of our faith. And then we might turn to Jude. The book of Jude. Chapter 1. There's only one chapter. That's right. You knew that. Verse 20. But beloved... Building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. How do we build up ourselves in that faith? By looking unto Christ for mercy. So, so many of these verbs of sight. And again, let me remind you that what we're, what we're talking about here is turning away and turning to. We want to turn our gaze, our eyes, our hope, our confidence away from everything else and unto Christ and Him alone. But now as we, as we listen, we have listened to the voice of Christ in all of these other uh, organs of His, the prophets, apostles. Now let's listen to Christ Himself. Turn with me, first of all, to John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This is Jesus speaking, obviously, to Nicodemus in this passage. Begins in verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night. He's asking him about his teaching. We know that thou art a teacher come from God because no no one could do the miracles that thou doest except God be with him. We would have wished that Nicodemus might have said, for no one can speak the word of God like you speak it. Miracle faith, as we have discussed before and will discuss again, is not saving faith. 
No one can do these signs that you do except God has sent him. And that's why Jesus immediately begins to speak with him about saving faith. Ye must be born again. Ye, all you Pharisees, must be born again. So Jesus will go on to describe that in verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now before we go back and look at that reference in Numbers 21, let's also turn to John chapter 12 while we're here. Jesus will speak once again there of being lifted up. Remember that there were two Gentiles that desired to see Jesus. Philip and, I'm sorry, Andrew and uh, Peter come to Christ and And they say, there are these Gentiles that desire to see you, Jesus. And he will say, that's it. That's that's what I've been waiting for. This is the cue, right? Notice what he says. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. That's in verse 23. Let's not take the time to read all of that. Instead, let's turn to... uh, Verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world. Uh, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man also be lifted up. So he repeats that here in John chapter 12. What is the significance about being lifted up? Why would Jesus mention that? Most of you Bible scholars have it figured out already, but let's study it together for a moment from Numbers chapter 21. Beginning in verse 1. Numbers 21, 1. And when King Arad, the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard tell that Israel came by the way of the spies. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And he called the name of the place Hormah, which means dedicated, basically. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to encompass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. 
And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he taketh away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make a pole, or make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Well, now we know what Jesus is talking about there. Beloved, after a great victory in verses 1 through 3, after a great temporal notice that God was on their side, The people of Israel then continued their journey in verse 4, and it was a hard journey. It says they were discouraged because of the way. It doesn't say what discouraged them. Uh, Maybe some of you have been on a hike, and and, you you, you thought that this is an unrelenting uphill, and it became discouraging. Maybe there were stickers and bushes. Maybe there were animals that plagued the the, uh, journey. Maybe bugs got into everything. Maybe threatening animals. Whatever it was, they were were somehow put to the worse by this way that they were traveling. It was not a comfortable way. It was more like a narrow way. And so, notice what happens here. The people uh, murmured against the Lord. Not only did they murmur against Moses and the Lord with regard to the way, But they murmured with regard to the bread. All we have is this light bread. And by light, what they meant was vain. Nothing to it. Nothing you'd go out and desire. It's just empty bread. Now I will remind you, beloved, that in murmuring against this manna, they were murmuring against the living bread which would come down from heaven. It's not just manna that they're despising. It's God's way of sustaining them. God's way of, in this uh, church under age illustration, taking a page from Galatians chapter 4, the Lord was teaching them that he was their supply and they should be looking to him and they had refused to look to him. They said his supply, uh, well, as the psalmist will put it, can the Lord set a table? In the wilderness is what they said. And so they doubted of God's veracity. They doubted of God's faithfulness. (coughs) They doubted of God's faithfulness in temporal things. Which beloved translates into eternal things as well. And so here the people of God have. Well they are nigh to apostasy. And so what does the Lord do? Well remember God is faithful. He is a faithful father. And so he sends them 
fiery serpents. Most commentators are agreed that the fiery pertains to the pain of the bite. Not that they were on fire as they crawled along on the ground, but that when they bit you, it was like your limb was on fire. They were suffering fiery serpents. Well, I think that these are wonderful, redemptive, historical themes. It's a serpent, right? What does the serpent represent to the people of God? The tempter, his temptations and sin. And what is the result of that bite? Fire, eternal fire that will judge the adversaries. These are fiery serpents. These are large and spiritual themes. Not just, a, not just a, an unfortunate accident in the wilderness where they came on a nest of snakes. And so here they are being bitten. Oh beloved, we've already seen their souls had already been bitten by the tempter. They had already been tempted by him to murmur against God. In fact, later on, uh, or sorry, not later on, un, up, and, up and, until chapter 14 of the book of Numbers, the Lord will say, they have murmured against me these ten times, and they will not go into the land of promise. And here in chapter 20, what are they doing? Chapter 21, they're still murmuring, aren't they? It's this light bread. We should have had the land of promise by now. Or as Korah said, will you put out the eyes of these men? We should have been in the land of promise a long time ago. And so murmur, complain, murmur, complain. The way that God has given us is too hard. So they distrust God. They have, as it were, no faith. These are the ones who believe not the gospel that was preached unto them says the inspired commentator in Hebrews chapter 4. And so what does God do to help them with their gospel light? He recognized, he has them recognize that, especially many of them who were bitten, that they are all bitten, infected with this serpent-like quality. That they are on fire in judgment Because they've turned away from the Lord and they've doubted of his goodness, although he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so what Moses will do is Moses will take that affliction, that infection. And notice that Moses cries out unto the Lord. The people say to Moses, cry out to the Lord that he take the snakes away. But the Lord's answer is no. I'm not going to take the snakes away. He instructs Moses rather to put a snake on a pole. Make one out of brass and put it up on a pole. Why brass? Brass is the metal of judgment, beloved. It always is. And so make this brass serpent and put it up on a pole. The word that is used for pole there is translated all over the Old Testament as ensign or standard ensign or standard why beloved do you set up an ensign or a standard so you have some place to look and so he sets up this serpent on a standard and anyone that looks upon that serpent is healed of the fiery bite it inflicted he didn't have to apply any medicine 
There were no uh, physical therapy exercises. There was nothing. There was nothing for the people to do except look. As Zachary Crofton said, with confident expectation of healing. Not just casting their pupils on the snake, but looking, believing that God would heal. Beloved, have you looked to Christ like that? Have you looked to Christ like that? Because Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That all who would look upon Christ, a crucified Christ, a Christ who has taken to himself the form that that serpent represented, the fire and the judgment and the bite. Christ himself up on the cross, receiving in his own body the punishment for our sins. Have you looked to that Christ? That Christ fashioned after the metal of judgment, receiving in our stead the very judgment of God. And if you look to him, you will live. You will live if you look in that way. Not just the historical anomaly of a man being raised on a cross. But a man being raised on a cross who is God-man. Who has received your sins upon his own shoulders. And there to be punished. And the wrath of God to be settled. Done, So that there is now therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Look unto me and be ye saved. All the ends of the earth. Look unto that Savior raised upon that standard. Made in that likeness of sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Is how the apostle will put it. In the form of the affliction itself. Jesus appears. Raised. On a cross. Do you look to him? Like that? That's what faith is. Look unto me. And be ye saved. All the ends of the earth. So the ensign. Is placed all over the Old Testament. As that. That rallying point of the people of God. The place that the people of God look to and gather at. In order to be delivered from their enemies. In order to be mustered as the people of God. Ready for battle. Beloved. Find yourself then. Looking upon Jesus Christ. Looking upon he who was raised up. Who was crucified for us. Well. We won't have time to move on and open up the next one. So we'll have to pull up here and make a few uses. Beloved, I, I, I hope that when we were looking at this, and as we talked about no medicine, that we have seen the gospel of free grace with regard to a crucified Christ. That all of the heavy lifting, if you will, all of the lifting has been done by him. Moses didn't say, go to the doctor and come with the doctor to the pole and behold the serpent. Everyone who looked with expectation 
upon that serpent was healed. Jesus himself draws the analogy before Nicodemus, that Pharisee who would have known immediately what Jesus was talking about. That it is indeed by faith in Christ, by simple, faithful looking unto him, where our gaze, attention, and affections are drawn to a crucified Savior, one who died for our sins. So this is yet another question that we can ask ourselves. We've been asking all through this series, right? Have I come to Christ? Have I turned to Christ from idols? Now we ask ourselves this question. Have I looked to Christ? But beloved, I'd like to ask it in just a little different way. I'd like to ask it in that perfect tense way. The Greek perfect. Have I looked and do I continue to look to Christ? Because make no mistake, a transient gaze, no matter how sincere, is not saving. It is looking and abiding in that look, if I can mix two of those words together. So let us end then where we began. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Verse 1, now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter Fastening his eyes upon him with John said, look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength and he leaping up stood and walked and entering with them into the temple walking and leaping and praising God and all the people saw him walking and praising God and they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple and they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him and as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John All the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. What a great passage. And it illustrates what we have tried to get across today. I hope it's helpful to you. Notice that in verse 3, and I'm going to draw a distinction here, the lame man saw Peter and John. To no effect, I might add. He saw them, but then Peter says, look on us. And it is at that moment that he has this realization 
of some benefit ready to be dispensed. And so, what does he do? He fastens his gaze. Now, he gets more than he bargained for. Obviously, he gets Jesus Christ. But notice that there's a distinction here between seeing and looking in the passage. Beloved, many in churches see Jesus. But I wonder how many of us look upon him. In that saving way. And have that union with him. The crucified Christ raised up on a standard. Not just for all to see. But for as many as God has ordained to look upon. And in that looking to Christ. Being saved from sin. And the wrath to come. And so, this passage, I think, is indicative in several ways. The first thing is that the man had nothing by which he could travel to Peter and John. The only thing he could do was look. He's a lame man. Those that were bitten in the wilderness, the only thing they could do is look. There was no cure. No cure in anyone except for a serpent on a pole, on a standard. And so they must take heed to the word of the preacher there. I'm going to set this pole up. I'm going to present him. And you look to him and you can be saved. What if many of them said, oh, no, 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 no. We've got this guy over here. He's pretty good with snake bites. Well, that would be an eternally tragic choice. Wouldn't it be? Beloved. Jesus Christ is raised up before us. As the apostle told the Galatians, Jesus Christ was presented, crucified unto you. Look to him and be saved. All the ends of the earth. Believe in his saving strength. And look away from all others. Don't just see him. Look upon him. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this scripture metaphor that runs throughout the Bible and that Thou hast told us over and again to look unto Thee, that Thou hast set Thyself as a kind Father and a Master looking to dispense the gifts of salvation to all who look unto Thee. We thank Thee for the words of our Lord Jesus Christ who presented Himself in this way to be looked upon with regard to his saving strength. Oh Lord, we pray that thou wouldst turn us away from merely seeing him to looking upon him as that metaphor for saving faith. And so Lord, we ask that it would be truly Christ that is presented. And when Christ is presented, that he would be presented in all of his sinful substitutionary work, as he appeared as that serpent on the standard, as the abject, as one under the judgment of God. O Lord, we pray that we might see him as that crucified Savior, as one who bore the sins of many. Also that we might see him as that victorious Savior, 
who, bearing the sins of many, was not therefore crushed under its weight. And that we might see him as that risen Savior, triumphing over enemies, giving gifts to men, establishing a kingdom, and advancing that kingdom even in our days, as many, including ourselves and others, look to him. Turn us away from all others then, Lord, we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.